Welcome to the Dakota Live Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Morier. The goal of this podcast is to help you better know the people behind investment decisions. We introduce you to chief investment and executive officers, manager research professionals, sales leaders, and other important players in the industry who will help you sell in between the lines to better understand the investment sales ecosystem. If you're not familiar with Dakota and their Dakota Live content, please check out dakota.com to learn more about their services. Before we get started, I need to read a brief disclosure. This content is provided for informational purposes and should not be relied upon as recommendations, or advice about investing in securities. All investments involve risk and may lose money. Dakota does not guarantee the accuracy of any of the information provided by the speaker who is not affiliated with Dakota, not a solicitation, testimonial, or an endorsement by Dakota or its affiliates. Nothing herein is intended to indicate approval, support, or recommendation of the investment advisor or its supervised persons by Dakota. Today's episode is brought to you by Dakota Marketplace. Are you tired of constantly jumping between multiple databases and channels to find the right investment opportunities? Introducing Dakota Marketplace, the comprehensive institutional and intermediary database built by fundraisers for fundraisers. With Dakota Marketplace, you'll have access to all channels and asset classes in one place, saving you time and streamlining your fundraising process. Say goodbye to the frustration of searching through multiple databases and say hello to a seamless and efficient fundraising experience. Sign up now and see the difference Dakota Marketplace can make for you. Visit dakotamarketplace.com today. Well, before I kick it over to Chris and the team, I want to introduce you to our guest, Greg Leenberger. Greg is the Director of Research and a Managing Partner for Marquette and owner of the firm. Greg has been with the company since 2008 and has over 24 years of investment experience. He leads the firm's capital markets research and direct investment strategies and policies. He chairs the firm's investment committee and also serves on the operations, OCIO, healthcare, defined contribution, and endowment and foundation committees. He has authored numerous papers on portfolio strategy and asset allocation and liability-driven investing, and he regularly consults with clients on these topics. Prior to joining Marquette, Greg was an actuarial consultant at Hewitt Associates for nine years, where he consulted on all aspects of pension and post-retirement welfare plans, including funding, accounting, strategy, design, and regulatory compliance. Greg holds a BS in mathematics and economics from the University of Notre Dame and an MBA with honors in analytic finance from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Greg is a fellow of the Society of Actuaries, an enrolled actuary, a member of the American Academy of Actuaries, and a fellow of the Conference of Consulting Actuaries. Sounds like a great interview. We look forward to hearing from it. Greg, the only problem with actuaries is you ask them when you're going to die and they give you the answer you don't want to hear. But other than that, thanks for joining us today. Everybody's busy. So for you to uh, allocate some time, we can't thank you enough. Thanks for having me. All right. So as always, let's just start with an overview, kind of a wellness check. Just give us an overview of Marquette, where you stand today. What's going on at the firm? Sure. So Marquette's been around since 1986. We are 100% employee-owned. We have 25 owners, five offices. We advise on about $326 billion. Of course, that number moves. Each quarter, we run those numbers. We have a variety of clients. So we don't have one particular client base that that is the majority of our assets that we advise or the majority of of revenue. Rather, it's it's a diverse client base. We have Taft-Hartley clients. We have public fund clients, we have healthcare clients, endowment foundation, corporate and high net worth. So really a diverse set of clients, a diverse set of revenues. And for someone like me who sits as the director of research, I get to work with all the different client types and understand all their unique needs. And, and uh, it really what makes the job so interesting. Let's, uh, let's dig into that client base a little bit. Uh, obviously, consultants working with direct institutions, but what we're seeing grow uh, and hear about more and more with institutional consultants is OCIO. Can you give us your 
take on OCIO and how you implement that for your clients? Sure. And really, one of the distinguishing factors of our OCIO platform is that it's open architecture. So if anyone hires us for an OCIO mandate, we don't have proprietary funds. We don't have a suite of funds. We don't have a suite of different asset allocations that we're going to put you into. Rather, everything's going to be customized. And is that the most efficient way to do it? Probably not. But as, as a consulting firm that really hangs its hat on client service, we pride ourselves on building client portfolios that are going to suit the unique needs and circumstances of each client. I think you look at the pension world as a great example of that. There's some pension plans out there that are 95, 100% funded. They're closed, they're frozen, and they're no longer accruing benefits. So that portfolio structure is going to look a lot different than a portfolio or a pension plan that's about 70% funded and needs to kind of recover some of that unfunded liability via investment. So again, we're going to customize each portfolio according to each client's needs. And then also with open architecture, we're able to source the best really strategies across asset classes and make sure there's a fit. We want some consistency across funds that we use with our different OCIO clients, but also recognizing that clients are different and not every client will utilize the same funds. You know, with OCIO, it's gotten very competitive like everything in this business, but listening to the roster of clients, endowments, foundations, pension, Taft-Hartley, there's a wide swath of expertise needed why do you think you're winning when you're competing for the OCIO business? Because it isn't easy to go in and talks about it, talk to a tax-exempt client and then pivot and talk to somebody with a 65% funded pension. Clearly, you have many hats to wear. So what, what do you think the secret sauce of Marquette is in bringing on new clients? I think the, the distinguishing factor that we really pride ourselves on, I mentioned just a minute ago with the, with the term hang our hat on, it's really client service. And we pride ourselves on culture. We pride ourselves on on personal relationships. At the end of the day, if the client doesn't trust you, that's never going to be a long-lasting relationship. So trust is is number one. And how do you build trust? Really by servicing the clients. And our CEO would say servicing the heck out of those clients. You return phone calls within 24 hours. You proactively call to let clients know what's going on. And if we can build that trust via really exemplary service, we think that's the best way to, to, to build our client base and to develop a really strong referral base across existing clients. Uh, so, Greg, next few questions are going to go into the investment process, your research process that, that you had up there at Marquette. Uh, let's just dive in first to alternatives, right? That's a big part of not only institutional clients, their allocation, but we're seeing it grow within the high net worth advisory channel as well. Can you talk about the use of alternatives, how you source ideas, and then ultimately how you implement them based off of that different client type that you do have there at Marquette? Yes. So so like most manager selection processes, there's an inbound process and an outbound process, right? Naturally, just because because of our size and because of our client base, we'll have a lot of strategies and managers proactively reach out to us. And that's always a great source of discussion. About new funds. But also, we're not doing our part as a, as a consulting firm if we're not proactively going out and finding new strategies, finding new funds that are going to make sense for our clients or could be a fit for our clients. And particularly as it relates to, to emerging managers and diverse managers, we, we, we really pride ourselves on, on the kind of the outbound element of this process. Now, all that said, when it, com- when it comes to implementing alternative strategies, We've grown a lot as a firm. We used to be almost exclusively a fund-to-funds firm across private equity and, and hedge funds. But as we've gotten bigger, 
as we've developed larger larger relationships and, and, and taken on larger, more sophisticated clients, fund to funds just isn't enough. So we're doing more and more in the direct world, both with hedge funds and private equity. For some clients, we'll do some co-investing, but really it's it's primarily still fund and fund, fund to funds because honestly, our median client's about $140 million today. So because of that size, there's still going to be some reliance on fund to funds, but with the billion dollar clients, the multi-billion dollar clients are doing more directs. So Greg, when, when we hear that refrain a lot, it seemed like the normal linear path. You know, we were talking about our alma mater before we got on. It's different in 1989 when I got out, 1999, 2009, et cetera, et cetera. People running money 20 years ago, fund of funds. Then it became fund of funds with co-investment. Then it became, let's find individual buyout managers ourselves. Let's do direct deals. The ball keeps moving down the court. Can you talk about how your clients are sourcing, how you source ideas, and will you partner with a private equity, a private credit manager with the ability to have co-investment opportunities to obviously lower fees and increase returns? How's that all yeah, working abs- out? Because these are evolving massively. Absolutely. And that's really a product of, of our growth as a firm and our growth, our growth of, of our client base as well. We're certainly interested in, in doing that where it makes sense. And of course, like I said, some clients just are going to be too small and being unable to do it. That said, as we've developed larger, more sophisticated clients, that's something that we have a great research team here. Our lead analysts on the private equity space and the private equity space, private credit space are tremendous. They have great relationships across the whole landscape. And this is something we do talk more and more about. And if we can save our clients some, some fees in terms of management, that's just more money in their pockets when they make these investments. So something we're certainly doing more and more of as time goes on. Yeah, I'm sure co-investments are no dissimilar than going into some large pool where if you've got 20 investments, four might really pan out, two will be really carry the returns, and co-investments are probably not too dissimilar. Obviously, there's a lot of, I'd say we hear private equity and private credit quite a bit. And when we look at, when we, let's talk about pensions for a second. When you, when you talk to state funds, and probably Marquette and the large consultants, you've got your roster of managers that you're familiar with, that you're comfortable with. So the re-ups really become a process Talk about, and you mentioned it with DEI and emerging managers, is there the ability for a boutique manager, a new idea, a new team to win and to get mindshare from consultants that have incredibly deep relationships? How does, you know, for our listeners, somebody might have a $500 million first-time private equity, private credit fund, and they're like, geez, how can I compete against XYZ on fund five, six, seven, eight? One of the things that we've always prided ourselves on as a firm as, as we used to describe ourselves as a boutique investment consulting firm. As time has gone on, it's hard to describe ourselves perhaps as a boutique investment consulting firm, given the amount of money that we oversee today and the fact that we have five offices, over 140 employees. But that is still very much part of our DNA, and that really manifests itself in the manager search process. And a lot of our consultants would tell you today that, hey, anyone could go out and find a large private equity manager because if I have a client big enough with enough money, that private equity manager is going to pick up the phone and talk to me because I have the, this, this, this client in a certain dollar of assets that is going to be a good fit for them. But really, I think the, the most rewarding aspect of manager search is finding those new ideas and finding those new strategies and ideas, and, and especially as it relates to, to minority products, women, women-owned uh, firms. We want to work with every one of those that's going to be a good fit. Of course, there has to be that they have to be have institutional quality, right? They have to have the right technology, the right security, the right underwriting, the the appropriate uh, accounting, the appropriate independence of auditor, et cetera, et cetera. But if if any manager makes their way through our four phase process, whether they're they're a one of the largest players, you know, in, in the world as it relates to private equity, 
that's great. But we're more interested in those boutique size managers that have proven they can do it and are going to be a good fit. And honestly, are going to be a more interesting story to tell as we go out and talk to our clients. Greg, you just touched on something uh, pretty interesting. We're, we're going to get into what a win looks like at Marquette for a manager calling on you. Uh, that's the end goal, but you just touched on kind of what that process is. What Expand a little bit more on that four-phase process for our listeners. Yes. Yeah, so so if, if you think about, I think any investment consultant firm is going to have this, this funnel-type process, right, where you kind of look big picture of what all the different funds are out there. You start to cut it down by returns. But one of the most important things that we think as, as a firm, as an investment consulting firm, is really getting to know those managers and it's called trust but verify, right? So we'll, we'll go through all the different paperwork, we'll go through the RFIs and, and we'll really tr- try to get to know the firm and understand all the key personnel and decision makers. But for us, one of the biggest value adds is going and meeting every one of the, the, the individuals on that team with the on-sites and making sure that the server room actually is where they say the server room is and making sure that their, their, their trading software will prevent certain trades that aren't allowed and really getting comfortable with the different people making the decisions on those products. And if there's a comfort there, if there's a fit there, if they've checked all the boxes compliance-wise, and the, the numbers have to be there to a degree, right? We're not going to select managers purely based on performance. That's a dangerous game to play. But if, if they've proven they can, they can effectively execute on their strategy, are a good fit, are institutional-like, and are aligned with us in terms of interests and fees, and, and are going to work well with us as we work with our clients, we think that's a win. Yeah, it's interesting with COVID. Obviously, travel was restricted, and I knew some people made allocations to managers and subsequently had to redeem because things got sideways. So back to the old school mentality of you want to be in people's offices, you want to make sure it's the right address. And as you said, you probably have some restrictions with some of your clients. And it's good to know that you know people are traveling again and you know going having somebody come a firm like you come to do an offsite is always a, a great seal of a, of approval, which is wonderful to hear that. All right, so you, you go through the four phase process, you find a manager, you like what what does a win look like? Is this a one off? Could this be a pension search, a Taft-Hartley search that is looking for one particular security and structure? Or does this go on some large approved list where your consultants, when they are speaking with their clients and they ask for a certain type of security, it's like they go right to that approved list. How, how does, for us as sales professionals representing strategies, what will we think of as the funnel of assets from Marquette via a select list, an approved list, or a model, et cetera? So, so the way we, we run things here at Marquette is we have uh, we have a couple of lists. So we have a top picks list, which is typically six names per strategy, right? And when I say strategy, I mean within fixed income, you have a high yield strategy, you have a senior secured loan strategy. So each strategy, we want to have about six names, our top picks. And then a bullpen list, which is kind of like your second set of names, which is anywhere from three to six names. Again, that's somewhat contingent on the asset class because in some asset classes, there are just going to be a lot more options than others. And then getting back to the idea of customizing portfolios, when a consultant comes to us and says, hey, client XYZ wants to do a search, and let's just use fixed income as an example, I wants to do a search in high yield, they'll work with our lead fixed income analyst to determine, again, who's going to be the best fit, right? Some high-yield strategies are a little more conservative. Some high-yield strategies are more aggressive. Of course, high-yield as a whole is an aggressive asset class, but there are nuances to it. And the client may be trying to, to build a higher-octane fixed-income portfolio, so that might be a little bit more aggressive. Or they may be using simply to complement a, a, a kind of an anchor to a, a core anchor to the to, to the fixed income portfolio, so maybe you want to be a little bit more conservative. Again, it's very it's very dependent upon the client and what they're trying to do. So we'll work closely with our consultant to build a, a search that goes in front of the client, but 
the goal is to include really just names on our topic and bullpen list because we've spent the most time getting to know those strategies. And then once those names go in front of the client, then of course, of course, we'll work with the client to make sure they make the best decision. No, it's always good to know that what the outcome is. We all report to individuals and, hey, where do we stand with Marquette? Well, we're, we're working our way towards the top pick list. Right now we're in the bullpen. So uh, th- those, are, those are good uh, data points to know in terms of the linear approach to winning business. Greg, on the traditional side of things, when you look at the top picks in the bullpen list, is there an opportunity for boutique managers to, to be a part of those lists? Um, and are, do you have kind of sort of uh, thresholds in line, whether it's years of track record, AUM levels? Um, just, just touch on boutique managers, more so on the traditional side when reaching out to, to your team. Yeah, so I used, I used the term a few minutes ago, institutional quality, right? We want to see a track record. A three-year track record will be satisfactory. We're not going to require a five-year track record. A one-year track record is, is, is a little too short for us to, to be completely comfortable with for a manager. But the three-year track record, uh, at the, the, the minimum asset size, it's going to be contingent upon the strategy. There certainly has to be a, a threshold of, of um, uh, again, depends upon the asset class. But we're flexible. There's no hard and fast number on what that looks like. But if there's proven performance, if, if again, the alignment interest is there, if it's institutional quality, again, in terms of all the, like the infrastructure, the technology, the fee structure, among other requirements, if those, all those boxes are checked, we're certainly, we're certainly open to those conversations and, and interested in talking to those types of strategies. No, it's good. I mean, obviously, there's, there's the big firms that, that permeate a lot of lists, iconic brand names that have been around for years for obvious reasons because they've performed. And then, you know, obviously, people want to spin out and start their own firm, and they're always wondered if, hey, how do I even get to the first 100 million, the first 200, 300, you know, how, you know, the old Joe Collins to take to build a three-year track record. But it's good to know that there are willing listeners. And we do, our, we, we inspire all managers, get the conversations going, even six months, nine months into it, you get the conversation going. And before you know it, you're at a three-year track record. So, you know, we, we champion the boutique manager uh, on this Dakota Live call. All right, last question, Greg, before we let you go. Uh, You've got you've got the uh, top picks list. You got the bullpen. Are there any searches over the next two quarters where you're really looking for exposures on behalf of your clients? So that might be music to our listeners' ears. Yeah, well, given what's happened in in the fixed income world with rates moving as much as they have, we're we're seeing a lot of activity in fixed income. We're seeing a lot of activity in international equities. International equities partly driven by what happened with Russia Ukraine last year. What's happened in China? There's a lot of questions ar- around. China and whether clients continue to be comfortable investing with China or having Chinese exposures in their portfolio. And that's a topic for a whole nother time. But because, because of the, the, the Russia Ukraine issue, because of China, because of, uh, you know, again, uncertainty across the geopolitical stage, international equities has always been a source of, of a lot of search activity for us. And then, like I said, with given what happened with rates over the course of 2022 and, and really year to date, even fixed income is another space we're seeing a lot of activity. And, and one of the biggest themes we're seeing across our client portfolios is, is perhaps stepping back out of equities a little bit and going back into fixed income a little bit, of course, all within the guidelines of the investment policy statement. But again, we, we, we have the running joke around here that that fixed income actually got its last name back where you're actually getting income today where you couldn't before. And, and there's less dependence upon equities to do all the heavy lifting in portfolios. So the, the short answer to the question is fixed income and international equities are, are the, the, the most active spaces for us as we look forward here. Well, there's a lot of listening. It's funny, Jim Grant, who I've followed for years, I spent some time as a fixed income sales professional in your hometown there, in your town of Chicago. Um, he coined this, the, the uh, phrase rate-free risk when rates, when rates were at zero. So it is nice to have income. I mean, as we speak, the, the six-year 
the six year, the six month uh, T bill is over five percent. So you're getting paid to be conservative. And I think all of our fixed income friends, they've had a rough ride the last few years, and now things are back in business. And we hear that a lot, also with international, just on the valuation dispersion. Greg, you're busy. Um, we're recording this um, ahead of the the scheduled call because you're traveling a lot, and we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day to share your insights with uh, the Dakota Live team and all of our listeners. We can't thank you enough. And hopefully when we're in Chicago, our paths will cross. Thank you, Chris and the team for that insightful interview. If you like what you heard, check out Dakota.com and register for the next Dakota Live call every Friday at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. You can find this episode and past episodes on www.dakota.com as well as Spotify, Apple, Google, or your favorite podcast platform. Finally, we are available on YouTube if you prefer to watch while you listen. Thank you all for being here and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Don't say goodbye.